Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 20, 12 through 21. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor, sorry, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. That is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of our Lord. Well, good morning, family of God. I want to share with you a story from the Brothers Grimm, but it's retold by Joy Davidman. Once upon a time, there was a little old man. His eyes blinked and his hands trembled. When he ate, he clattered the silverware distressingly missed his mouth with the spoon as often as not, and dribbled a bit of his food on the tablecloth. Now he lived with his married son, having nowhere else to live. And his son's wife was a modern young woman who knew that in-laws should not be tolerated in a woman's house. I can't have this, she said. It interferes with the woman's right to happiness. So she and her husband took the little old man gently but firmly by the arm and led him to the corner of the kitchen. There they set him on a stool and gave him his food, what there was of it, in an earthenware bowl. From then on, he always ate in the corner, blinking at the table with wistful eyes. One day... His hands trembled rather more than usual, and the earthenware bowl fell and broke. If you are a pig, said the daughter-in-law, you must eat out of a trough. So they made him a little wooden trough, and he got his meals in that. These people had a four-year-old son, of whom they were very fond. One supper time... The young man noticed his boy playing intently with some bits of wood and asked what he was doing. I'm making a trough, he said, smiling up for approval, to feed you and Mama out of when I get big. The man and his wife looked at each other for a while and didn't say anything. Then they cried a little. Then they went to the corner and took the little old man by the arm and led him back to the table. They sat him in a comfortable chair and gave him his food on a plate. And from then on, nobody ever scolded when he clattered or spilled or broke things. 
obedience to the Ten Commandments is not only good for us, it's good for those around us. It builds communities and families. It heals relationships. It makes us more like Jesus, allows us to grow fully into the image of his son, of Jesus, God's son. The story reminds us of what it looks like to both humanize and be dehumanizing. Dehumanization is what happens when we break God's laws. And it leads to all sorts of wickedness. But to keep the commandments of God is to humanize. To see each other and to see ourselves as God has intended for us to be seen. This week we're studying the Ten Commandments, second part. And I want to reiterate some things that were talked about last week when John Mark preached on the first four commandments. I want to reiterate what the law of God is for, some of the purposes of the law. The law, first of all, shows us the moral compass. It shows us which way is north, which way is the right way to live. But not only does it show us the right way to live, it also shows, if we look at the law and look at our hearts, that we can't keep that on our own. (laughs) And all of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us can fully keep the law of God. But what it does is it tutors us and guides us and teaches us to look to someone else to keep that law in our stead. Namely, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who lived the perfect life, kept the law fully, died an innocent criminal's death on a cross, and rose again for our salvation. So we no longer have to look to keep the law to be right with God, but simply by turning from our sin, placing our faith in Jesus Christ, when he died, he rose again on my behalf. I have a life and a relationship and a place at the table with God. Not because of what I did, but because of what he did. And that's where we find the third work of the law, which is to If I'm in Christ, it shows me how do I live to promote human flourishing, to promote God's shalom. So we're looking at the second half of the Ten Commandments this morning. And I want to start with the commandments. And I want to walk through these commandments because the commandments show us two things. They show us both what not to do, but they also show us what to do. So we're going to look at stuff not to do and stuff to do. But to get this word, I want to agree with John Mark's prayer earlier that we really need the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. So would you bow your heads with me one more time? Let's go to the Lord and pray for his help. His help to hear from him, to see truly who Jesus is and who we are. I'll give you a moment to quiet your hearts and I'll say a prayer for us. Father, we are people who are desperate for your peace, desperate for your love, desperate for your joy, not only in our lives, but in our community. We're desperate for your order. God, we need you to illumine our minds this morning to hear from you. Speak to us this morning. Speak through me, God. 
And I pray that you would captivate us with imaginations of what it looks like to love our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, I've been praying for you. I've been praying that God would do a special work this morning. I know that I'm not capable of bringing about any kind of special work. What I've been praying is that God would use this text of Scripture to capture our hearts. Last week, we looked at Tablet 1, which was about what it looks like to have a relationship with God, what loving God looks like. And this week, we're looking at what does it look like to love our neighbor as ourselves? What does it look like to love our neighbors, to selflessly give ourselves on behalf of, of the other? And my prayer is that this morning, that, that, that the words I say would not quench whatever God would do, but they would make whatever God wants to do explode with power and with imagination and creativity and what it looks like for you and I to fully engage in the work of loving our neighbor as ourselves. So that's what I'm praying for us, that God would do that special work. As we walk through this passage, I hope that we'll see this. So we'll start in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. This commandment serves as a bridge from the first tablet of the law to the second tablet of the law. The first tablet of the law, he said, was focused primarily on people's relationship with God. Those are the first four commandments looked at last week. We can call this, like Martin Buber does, the religious table. The second tablet then is focused on primarily on people's relationship with their neighbors. Those are the last six commandments, which are printed in our bulletins. We can call this the ethical table, the table of ethics. The fifth commandment serves as a bridge by setting up the directives for how someone relates to and deals with other people in our community. And what it does is it shows us the breadth of love for our neighbor. This commandment makes it clear that relating to our neighbors does not start on the stoop. It does not start on the front lawn. Loving our neighbor starts in the living room. It starts in the kitchen. It starts in the bedroom, in the bathroom. It starts in the home. It begins with those that have been closest to us since before we were born. Now, what you see in this is this word honor. Honor your father and your mother. Now, the only other place in all of the Old Testament where we see this word honor used as a command is in our memory verse, which if you've been picking them up on the back table, you'll know that in Proverbs 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So this word is saying, honor God with what you have, with everything you have. And there's a promise attached to that, just like there's a promise attached to this. The promise is that if you do, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I'm not going to go into what all that means, but we have a promise in this verse too, which says that if you honor your father and your mother, then your days will be long in the land the Lord your God is going to give you. Now, I want to first start talking about what this tells us not to do. Everybody say, don't do stuff. Don't do stuff. Now, we know that we're talking about not doing stuff, not from this verse, but from the verses that follow. In verse 13, we read, you shall not. In verse 14, we read, you shall not. In verse 15, we read, you shall not. In verse 16, we read, you shall not. In verse 17, we read, you shall not. These are prohibitions. Everyone say, don't do stuff. We're talking about not doing some things. And in this verse, verse 12, we see, honor your father and your mother. But implicit in this command 
are any thoughts, words, behaviors that would dishonor one's parents. Those that you shouldn't do if you are really going to honor your parents. Let's look a little closer to what we shouldn't do. What we shouldn't do. We should, if we're going to honor our father and mother, then what shouldn't we do? Well, the first thing we shouldn't do is we should not dishonor them with our actions. We should not dishonor them with our actions. In the next chapter of Exodus, chapter 21, we see this command in verse 15. Where in Exodus 21, 15, we read these words, Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is violent action against the parent. It doesn't have to result in the death of a parent, but if it does, so much the worse. And the prohibition here for not striking a parent, the consequence for that was death to the son or daughter who did this. Violence against a parent is prohibited by love for your neighbor. Another way that dishonor can look is that we can dishonor with our words. Again, in Exodus 21, we read in verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. The word for curses can actually be insults. Whoever insults his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is about violent words, demeaning words, words of ridicule towards a parent. Anything in this vein is prohibited by love for neighbor. Dishonor also relates to our lifestyle. So with actions, words, lifestyle. Proverbs is full of sayings about, about a child bringing dishonor upon his parents. A couple of examples are Proverbs 10 verse 1, which reads, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Proverbs 17.25, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to, to her who bore him. So walking in foolishness, making poor choices, these are bring sorrow, grief, bitterness to one's parents. Walking in the way of a fool is prohibited by love for a neighbor. And we know that love from a parent can overcome that, which we've seen the prodigal, sorry, the prodigal son that Jesus tells. Right, that even if, if, a, if, a, if, a, if, a, if a son or a daughter is walking in foolishness, that the love of that father can still overcome glory. Glory can still overcome. But we can bring dishonor upon our parents by our lifestyle. We can also bring dishonor with our attitude. In Proverbs 23, 22, we read these words. It says, listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. This verse connects our attitude with our actions. Dishonoring our parents with our actions, words, or lifestyle doesn't start with our actions, words, or our lifestyle. Dishonoring involves belittling or thinking little of or decreasing the value of them in our hearts. And that works its way out in our actions and our words and our lifestyle. This is all implicit in the command to honor your father and your mother. So what he's saying is, God is saying is not only honor your father and mother, but don't do anything that would dishonor your father and your mother. Everyone say, don't do stuff. Don't do it. Let's go to the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Now the thrust of this commandment is against violent, deliberate killing of another person or of oneself. To kill someone violates the ontological reality that a person is someone who is made in the image of God. To take away the life of someone 
is to deface the image of God in a permanent way, temporally speaking. God is the giver of life. To take away the life of someone else is to stand in the place of God. So the prohibition against taking life is based on the reality that the image of God is in every person. Jesus, don't take life. Don't murder. But Jesus teaches us that the taking of life, like the dishonoring of parents, does not start with the actions. It starts with the heart. Remember in, verse, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says these words. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The actions that all these commandments that we're looking at prohibit begins in the heart. And that's why Jesus can say in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said of tales of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. See, the dehumanization of another individual is a matter of the heart, not merely the actions. Therefore, the Holocaust is dehumanization, but so is the belittling of another person in my mind. What Colossians, what Philippians talks about in thinking less of someone else, thinking of myself higher than someone else, that is dehumanizing. Thinking of myself as having more intrinsic worth than another person is belittling them, belittling the image of God in them. And this is the heart of the law, and this is prohibited by love of neighbor. Let's go to the seventh commandment. And by the way, I I just want to give you a note. I hope by the time I get through going through these, you'll be sick of what you're supposed to not do. That's that's part of the point. Don't do this stuff. Let's go to the seventh commandment. You should not commit adultery. The prohibition here is against the violation of the marriage covenant through sexual intercourse with someone who is married. Now, the focus here is on the protection of the marriage of our neighbor. Love for neighbor. So I'm protecting the marriage of my neighbor by not violating their marriage covenant. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to sleep with their spouse. But the commandment does not just emphasize the prohibition on sex with a married person. It implicitly prohibits other forms of sexual morality. But one Old Testament scholar writes this. I want you to listen to these words. I think this is really important for especially in our day and age and where we are right now in what our culture thinks about sex. While the commandment does not explicitly address fornication or sexual immorality, an implicit word is sounded about where the sexual relationship belongs in the marriage of a man and a woman. The commandment thus provides the starting point of a sexual ethic, even as it emphasizes the importance of a person's marriage. Your neighbor's marriage has as much weight and protection as does his life. Your neighbor's marriage has as much weight and protection as does his life. You should not commit adultery is right on the heels of you should not murder. 
What this commentator is saying is that the commandment upholds a sexual ethic that is centered in the marriage of a man and a woman. This would lead us to conclude that sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is not walking in the way of love, not walking in the way of wisdom, not walking in the way of God's intention for his people. And like the fifth and the sixth commandment, the behaviors that violate this commandment don't start with the behaviors. They start with the heart. Thus, lust or sexual desire in the heart for someone not your spouse is prohibited by love for neighbor, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Everyone say, don't do stuff. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Now, this is a very general commandment. It's not saying what not to steal. So we can make the, the, the inference that he's talking about either a person or an object. What we need to recognize is that, is that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And if God owns everything, then it's not ours to take. Only the Lord can give or take away. Therefore, no human being may enslave a person or kidnap a person or take their property. This commandment prohibits that. We're going to find out in the 10th commandment, though, is that this also hits at the intent of the heart. It's not just the act of taking it. It's the act of longing for it, of finding my sufficiency with it. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This commandment is calling for truth in every area of life. And it specifically is talking about referring to the legal process in Israel, about bearing false witness, about falsely testifying against my neighbor, but really to despise the truth, as one commentator says, to despise the truth is to despise God, whose very being and character are truth. If I try to cloak the truth, I cloak the character of God. Which means that this command calls for us to not lie, not deceive, to not slander, not gossip, not vilify, not speak rashly against someone. We must love the truth and protect others' goods na- uh, the good name of others. But this also goes back to the heart. The reason that I bear false witness about my neighbor is because I don't think good thoughts about my neighbor. We don't do this stuff. The 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This hits at the intent of the heart that's at the basis of every single one of these commandments. Adultery starts with coveting my neighbor's wife or my neighbor's husband. Stealing starts with covering my neighbor's ox or his donkey or his car or his house. Or his PlayStation. Bearing false witness deals with coveting a reputation or coveting an identity that's not mine. This commandment deals with the person's inner heart. We're saying that even my attitudes and my thought life is subject to the word of God. We've already seen that Jesus said, from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. 
This is hitting at the very intent of our hearts. So everyone say, don't do stuff. Now, just because you don't do this stuff doesn't make you a righteous person. We already talked about that. Right. This is not talking about just abstaining from doing what is wrong. Because what God calls us to, as people who are in Christ, is to be is to be radical people who seek the good of others and pursue his peace in all the earth. That's what God calls us to. That's what he empowers us to do by the Holy Spirit. And that's what John Calvin teaches us in his institutes about how you read the commandments. I want you to read this word from, I want you to hear this word from John Calvin. He's talking specifically about the sixth commandment, but what he says has implications in all the commandments. Listen to these words. He says, therefore, in this commandment, you shall not kill. Men's common sense will see only that we must abstain from wronging anyone or desiring to do so. Besides this, it contains, I say, the requirement that we give our neighbor's life all the help we can. To prove that I am not speaking unreasonably, God forbids us to hurt or harm a brother unjustly. Because he wills that the brother's life be dear and precious to us. So at the same time, he requires those duties of love which can apply to its preservation. And thus we can see how the purpose of the commandment always discloses to us whatever it there enjoins or forbids us to do. In other words, what, 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 the, what the commandment prohibits also tells us what it encourages. That's where I want to go next. Everyone say, do some stuff. Now, you can't just do some stuff. You've got to be empowered with the Holy Spirit to do some stuff. Now, I want to talk about what he's calling us to do. Look at number five. Honor your father and your mother. The word here is honor. Now, when I think about this word, this word honor, your father and your mother, a lot of commentators go to the story of Ruth as a person who demonstrates this with, with all of her life. You know the story. Ruth marries the daughter of Naomi. Sorry, the husband of Naomi. And then her husband passes away. And she's living in a land that's far away from her home, Naomi is. And, and she tells her daughters-in-law, you guys can go back to your homes. Don't stay around with me. But there's a reason why the book of Ruth is quoted in, in marriage ceremonies. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. This is a covenant that we use in marriages. But, but this is talking about a, a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. She says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to let you just whittle away as a man in the corner of a kitchen. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure that you have a home to die in. I'm going to make sure that you are taken care of for the rest of your life. And that is likely the impetus, the thrust of this commandment. Because the commandments were written to adults. Has implications, obviously, for children. We see that in Ephesians chapter 6. But it's written mainly to to parent children, to, to adult children who are saying, hey, take care of your, of, your, of your parents when they get to your old age. Make sure they have something to live for, even when they don't have the strength to get it for themselves. Honor your parents. Speak well of them. Care for them. They gave you life. Give them life. Now, 
what I find really interesting and somewhat ironic in this is that the promise attached to this is actually implicit, actually, it's actually inherent in what we read in the, in the commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. How are your days going to be long when your kids take care of you? So as I honor my father and mother, what I'm demonstrating is to my children, this is how you take care of your parents so that when they get to be my age, now they're going to care for me and my days are going to be long. This is a cyclical commandment that encourages generational prosperity and generational peace and generational health and generational shalom. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you. Now, of course, if he's in six, Paul's going to take that and take off just the land, but say, it is going to be long. He's going to say, this is the, the first commandment with a promise. And he's going to say, we're going to do this. We're going to obey our parents and the Lord, for this is right. This is what God calls us to. This is how you live righteously. So what does it look like to honor your father and your mother, whether you're a minor or whether you're a major? How do you honor the name of your parents? How do you take care of them? What does it look like to make sure they are set? The ones who carried you for nine months, making sure that they're taken care of in their old age. What does that look like? Phone calls and cards, the financial provision. What does that look like? Now, one thing I think we should note here and shouldn't dismiss is that this commandment has been used to cover up abuse. How do we think about this? How do I honor my parents if they didn't treat me right? How do I honor my parents if they've severed their ties with me? How do we do this? What does that mean for me and what does that mean for my relationship with God? Well, I think a couple of things we should, we should know. One is that the love that we give to our neighbor, we don't give because they deserve it. We give because it's intrinsic to the nature of how God made reality. So sometimes I honor because of a position or a role or an authority, even if not because of a demonstrated character, right? We see that in First Peter chapter 2, right? Honor the emperor. And Peter had no reason to say that based on the character of the emperor, right? And so we can still honor, we can still speak well of, even in situations in which there's been, we haven't been treated right. But there's also a response, a reciprocal responsibility on the part of the parent inherent in this commandment, which is, listen, like, you honor your father and mother. And this is what, this is what, this is what Paul's going to bring out in Ephesians chapter 6, right? He's going he's to make sure that we understand that, that when I'm honoring my father and my mother, that means that the fathers have a responsibility to train me up in the admonition of the Lord. So he says, honor your father and mother in the Lord in Colossians chapter 3. In the Lord. So, it encourages parents, treat your kids right. Don't provoke them to anger. Don't abuse your power or your authority. Part of honoring my father and my mother is also going to dictate that I'm going to take care of and honor my children and take care of them. So God 
I think we can find this commandment, God seeing and providing for even those who would have been maybe even despised or not given a place in the culture in which this is written. So we can honor our fathers and our mothers and those who are in authority. Secondly, you shall not murder. What does that mean for us? What kind of stuff do I do? Well, if he's saying don't murder, we already heard Calvin say is give our neighbor's life all the help that we can. In other words, protect and preserve life. Protect and preserve life. Don't just abstain from taking it, but protect it and preserve it. And we see this all around us in our community. I see this all around our congregation. This is what happens when this commandment encourages us and, and fuels us with the kind of energy that it takes to start a classical Christian school to take care of kids and give them life and education. This is what, what fuels people to leave jobs where, where they, could, they could gain a lot of money and a lot of prestige and a lot of fame, but instead decide to labor to provide health care to those who are uninsured and underinsured, like Christ Community Health Coalition. I don't know what God's calling you to do to protect and to preserve life, but I know he's giving you gifts and I know he's giving you talents. And the question is, how are you going to use that engineering mind or that mathematical mind or that, or that artistic mind to protect and to preserve mind, to preserve life? What God is calling us to is to use creativity and imagination to think well about what it looks like to protect life and to preserve life, especially the lives of the most vulnerable in our community. What is God calling you to do with the gifts he's given you? What is he calling you to do with the time he's given you? With the financial resources he's given you? How is he called for you to protect life, preserve life, encourage life, bring about life? Not just abstain from taking it. Everyone say, do some stuff. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. It's not just about abstaining from sexual immorality. He's talking about living purely and faithfully, keeping your word in your relationships. The covenant that we make as a husband and a wife is a, is a, is a, a bond of trust, a promise that is based on a, a covenant made before God. This is, I'm going to support you and love you in sickness and in health till death do us part. And what God calls us to is the faithful relationships of love and, and, and service for everyone around us. The marriage relationship is like an experiment for what relationships look like across our society. What God intends for all relationships to look like. Obviously, you can't go some places with other relationships. But the kind of covenant faithfulness that's required from a man to a woman and a woman to a man is the kind of covenant faithfulness that God wants with members of a church community and with friendship. So God's calling us to live pure lives and faithful lives. What does it look like to be more faithful in your friendships? What does it look like to be more faithful in your work? What does it, call, what does it look like to be more, more faithful in your marriage, relationship with your children? How can we live more pure and more faithful? Do some stuff. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Number eight. Number eight, which says, do not steal. Thou shalt not steal. What is he talking about? 
Or in Ephesians 4.28, we read these words. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he will have something to give to those in need. What God's calling us to is a radical generosity. Not just not taking something from someone else, but how can I steward the gifts and the resources that God's given me to bless those around me? Knowing that God has already taken care of me and will continue to do so. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. How can I use what God's given me to bless those around me? In my family and outside of my family, radical generosity. Number nine. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. What's he calling us to? To being deeply truthful, to edifying other people with our words. Again, in Ephesians 4, we read these words. Therefore, having put away falsehood, each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We are a truth people. Everyone say a truth people. Look at your neighbor say, speak the truth to me. That's dangerous. If you really want them to do that, that is dangerous. But that's how we become more into the image of Jesus is when we're spoken the truth to. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We encourage each other toward our full potential in Christ. We speak the truth with one another. We edify one another. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We can have gracious speech. And number 10, don't covet, which God's calling us to a radical contentment in the stuff that he's given us, a radical contentment in the identity and the life and the talents and the resources he's given us. Luke 12, 29, 30 says, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things and your father knows that you need them. Your father knows it. So we can be deeply and radically content where we are. That's what's going to fuel any other kind of love for my neighbor. So God's calling us to a life that is characterized by honor, by protection of life, by speaking the truth, by radical generosity, by deep contentment. That's what he's calling us to. Now, I don't want to leave this text without looking at the at the end of this text because if we we hear these words about what god calls us not to do what god calls us to do what we see is again what we where we radically fall short of that and that's where the end of this text is is so beautiful look with me at the end of this text in verse 18 now when all the people saw the thunder And the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, rightly so. And they stood far off, far off from the mountain of God, far off from the presence of God, far off from the words of God. And they said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. These people knew something about the holiness of God that they could see visibly enacted for them on the mountain that was shaking and quaking, from which fire was blazing. Says, if God speaks to us, we're going to die. If if we see him, if, if if we hear his words, we can't survive. Moses, you go speak for us. You go speak to him. 
They said, we need a mediator. Somebody to come between us and the holy. Someone who can interpret these words for us. Someone who can, who can show us what these words mean. Someone who can help us be the full people that God's called us to be. And Moses said to the people in verse 20, do not fear. Don't be afraid. For God has come to test you. We've seen this word before throughout Exodus, right? Test you, to refine you, to purify you, to make you into his holy people. That's why he's come to you. That's why he's given you his word. He's come to test you. Why? That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. I don't want you to get off the mark. I want you to live lives that are fully holy and human. The full way that God's made you to live. I want you to live with full love for God and full love for your neighbor. I want you to bring about the flourishing of my commands and my intent for the world. And since the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now, why would Moses draw near to the darkness? Why would Moses draw near to the fire? Why would Moses draw near to the word? I think it's because Moses had met with God. Remember Exodus chapter 3? Moses is on this very mountain. This mountain. And he sees a bush. It's burning up, but it's not being consumed. And he goes near to it. And the voice says to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. He saw, he heard a voice come out of the fire. And he was commissioned to go as God's rescuer to God's people. Moses knew this is a God that you should fear, but don't be afraid. Because in my presence with you is God's provision for you. As I'm standing before you, giving you God's word, his grace is for you. His grace is present in me because God had made a promise to Moses. He said, you're going to come back and worship on this mountain. So now when the people of God have come to this mountain that is quaking and shaking and fire is blazing and smoke is billowing, Moses knows that God is keeping his word. And that God is making for himself a people who are going to get to a promised land. God is making for himself a people who are going to live out this command of loving him and loving their neighbors. Who are going to live out his command of being a new kind of community. Who seek God's shalom everywhere they go. Through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And we know from Hebrews that this Moses was only a foretaste of the ultimate Moses who is Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, God in the flesh, who came as Emmanuel to be God with us, his word incarnate, to show us how to live and to give us his word. He rises it up the commandment, shows us what the intent of the heart was, and says, you've got to be more righteous than that. But guess what? You can't. But if you just trust me, I can make you that kind of a person. I can give you that kind of creativity. I can give you that kind of imagination. I'm taking you out of the corner. So you can feast at the table. So you can have, be one with me. Part of my family. A new community who loves God and loves his people. A free people who don't have to fear anything. Because our reverence and awe for God, for his son, displace every other fear. What is God calling you to do? 
How is God calling you to love him, to love your neighbor as yourself in a radical way, but that is totally in line with how he made you, totally in line with your potential, totally in line with what he's fueled you and equipped you to do? Don't be afraid. Do it. Do that stuff. We're about to go to the Lord's table. We're about to, to, to consume the, the, the bread representing the body of Christ, the, the, the juice that represents the, the blood of Christ, to remind ourselves that this kind of a, of a zealous, obedient love for God, love for neighbor, is not going to be sustained by small spurts of passionate love. It's going to be sustained by being fueled by Jesus. Love incarnate who lives in us and equips us to love each other. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Our Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the reality that Jesus did what none of us could do. Thank you for your commitment to us. The commitment to your own word, commitment to your own promises. That this is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. And I pray for this congregation, pray for us, that Lord, you would spark in us. Not a small flame, but a wildfire that fills our homes and our communities with love, with joy, with true peace as we seek to love our neighbors and ourselves out of the love that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.